$50 million for B.C. tourism operators. I think that they've heard the tourism industry loud and clear. Reaction from attractions who say it's not nearly enough. Encouraging results from mix and match vaccine studies. Means that you generate antibodies and this antibody can neutralize the virus. The benefits of following AstraZeneca with a shot of Pfizer instead. And the unsolved murder of two boys in Stanley Park in the 1950s. It's a case that's really puzzled investigators for over 70 years. How new technology could help identify the babes in the woods. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. The BC government is rolling out another multi million dollar piece of its COVID recovery plan a one time grant for the province's major tourist attractions. But as Richard Zussman reports, some operators are warning it won't provide nearly enough of the financial support they desperately need. They are the attractions BC is known for. Now they're getting some help. From museums to amusement parks to science centers, these sites are part of BC's world-renowned tourism industry. And right now, people in tourism are hurting. As the province slowly gets ready to open up the economy, the province offering financial help for anchor attractions. This is how it works. Urban attractions with more than 75,000 visitors a year can get up to $1 million. Rural attractions with more than 15,000 visitors, up to half a million dollars. And a tour bus company with 30,000 riders a year, they can also get half a million dollars for a total of $50 million. These funds from the government will really contribute towards our ability to thrive as an organization as we emerge from the pandemic. While the pandemic meant the Space Centre saw 120,000 fewer guests through the gates, it's been a wilder ride for the PNE. The now twice-cancelled fare alone brings in around 800,000 visitors a year. So while the funding is helpful, it's far short of the $8 million the PNE has asked the province for. At some point, the debt becomes insurmountable and that the organization, what we can do and how we can do it, is going to be forever changed. One million dollars, although we are incredibly thankful for that concrete step forward, is not going to be enough. I know that the PE has other options through the city of Vancouver primarily, uh, and we're going to continue to work with both the city and the PE and, of course, other attractions across the province. At Science World, another anchor, there has been an 80% drop in revenues from a $20 million operating budget, and new costs are coming. In the case of the dome, for example, we haven't reskinned that dome since 1986 when it was first put in place. It's leaking. And for us to reskin that will probably be at over $12 million cost. The sector is hoping this is just the start of more to come. While the province promotes it as the lifeline needed to stop a pandemic-battered tourism sector from drowning in debt. All right, Richard Zussman joins us live from Victoria with more. Richard, there's also a lot of uncertainty over reopening plans uh, in other sectors, not just tourism. Absolutely, Sophie. A lot of questions about when these tour buses will be rolling again, when some of these accommodations will open up again. But no one is harder hit than the hotel and restaurant sector. And what they want to know from the province is when will things reopen? So we know from the Premier that there will be no easing of restrictions, at least through the upcoming May long weekend. And we also found out today that the province will be laying out this reopening plan next week 
week. The question is, when will things start to be eased? And many sectors like the restaurant sector say they need time to get ready. All of those plans will be laid out next week, uh, but be assured that we are in, in discussion with the, the uh, hospitality sector, have been for a long, long time, and uh, we will give as much notice as we can. Kitchens like this, it takes minimum three to four days to prep the food, and we're lucky that we're sort of open right now, but there's a lot of restaurants that are closed, and it's going to take them a week or two um, to get ready again. And a lot of them have lost staff, and they might not be able to hire back staff. And right now, they don't even know if they should hire them or not because they don't know if they're opening. And Sophie, Chris, when those details come next week, don't expect a flick of the switch. Expect it to take a while until restrictions start to ease, potentially sector by sector. All right, looking forward to that announcement. Thank you, Richard. Seems like we're on the right track because there's some good news looking at today's COVID-19 numbers for B.C. We have 411 new cases. That's the lowest daily number since March 8th. Our total is now just over 140,000. Almost 4,900 of those cases are active. 360 people are in hospital, 127 of those in the ICU. And sadly, two more people have died. Well, with thousands of British Columbians now looking forward to their second dose of vaccine, the debate over safety and effectiveness of mixing and matching is underway. Aaron MacArthur has more on a new study out of Spain and why UBC expert says it may be too soon to alter our province's rollout plans. Awesome. Oh, you did it already? We're done. Yeah. Okay. More than 200,000 British Columbians took the advice from health officials and gladly rolled up their sleeves for AstraZeneca. It was, in many cases, the only option available. With concerns now about blood clotting, the viral vector vaccine has been paused for any additional first doses, but will still be available for a second dose. But we will have more information as well in the next few weeks to give everybody all of the information they need to make an informed choice. One of the key questions is still supply. While there are hundreds of thousands of doses of AstraZeneca in Canada right now, many will expire by the end of June. The federal government, on the other hand, set to receive millions of doses every week of Pfizer-BioNTech. This week, we're receiving four and a half million vaccine doses, including a shipment from Pfizer that has been moved up ahead of the holiday weekend. Tuesday, Spanish researchers unveiled the first details from a study looking at the efficacy of mixing vaccines. One dose of AstraZeneca plus one dose of Pfizer boosted neutralizing antibodies more than seven times compared to people who received a second AstraZeneca shot. UBC researcher Horacio Bach says this study is just more than 600 people and really is too small to make sweeping conclusions. But the work does give scientists a reason to think the mix and match is plausible. You are increasing the exposure of your body to a similar protein, basically that in this case is the spike protein from the virus. And basically, you increase the, the number of antibodies over time. The initial results from the much larger British study recently revealed more mild side effects in the two-vaccine delivery. But the results indicating the actual immune response recorded in patients still not expected for several more weeks. Aaron MacArthur, Global News.
A car-free Granville Entertainment District could become a reality this summer if a motion before Vancouver City Council is passed this week. It's part of the push to drum up foot traffic in several areas around the city aimed at helping struggling businesses through the COVID pandemic. Amadagahi has more. Out of business, abandoned, and many times avoided. Now it's just kind of sad. It's like all the life has kind of been sucked out of it. There is little denial Granville Street in downtown Vancouver may need a makeover. Just ask the person paying nearly $25,000 a month in rent to have only one table occupied on a sunny afternoon. I think there's a lot, a lot to be done. What we're really hearing from businesses is please get people back in so that they don't forget about Granville Street. Meet the city councillor offering to throw the Granville Strip a lifeline. The goal is to be both car and bus free. Um, that's really what we'd like to see for a true people friendly, pedestrian friendly space. Her pitch is to eliminate car traffic on Granville Street between Smythe and Halpkin Fridays, Saturdays and Sundays this summer. It could be an opportune time. After all, Tuesday, the city also moved to scrap temporary patio permit fees and opened three outdoor plazas to public drinking. On Granville, the biggest hurdle appears to be convincing TransLink to reroute its buses. We're not out of this yet in terms of the pandemic. And the downtown BIA is hoping they can come to an agreement. Passengers don't like uh, to be on a street that's deserted and has a lot of uh, street-level vacancies. Uh, they may not feel safe uh, being there as a result of that. Back at Chit Chat Burger Bar, the owner would be happy with an even simpler approach. I think to completely close the street can be definitely done in the future, not right now. Right now, an easy solution for the city and for the businesses would be to close one lane. It's easy to implement. Well, Maud joins us live from Commercial Drive right now, where there's something similar in the works. Maybe one day they'll call it Commercial Walk. Who knows, Ahmad? Yeah, Chris, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the concept of a high street, but that's certainly what is being proposed for a commercial drive. I spent some time on the phone with the city councillor behind this idea, Councillor Pete Fry, and he's describing that European-style high street that is more focused on pedestrians, shopping and restaurants, and less focused on being a, a commuter route for cars. Here's what that might uh, look like. Uh, I'm going to show you First Avenue and commercial. That's where their idea of perhaps reducing it to one lane of traffic in each direction, maybe slowing down the speed limit to 30 kilometers an hour, more public art, more places for people to sit, some fancy landscaping perhaps. This of course all moving towards the same trend of what Vancouver could look like post pandemic and how we could offer people more activities outside. Here's what people here on the on the drive thought about this today. I can see the other point too, but right now I'd probably rather keep it the way it is. It just, it's a major thoroughfare too. It evacuates traffic from downtown or it brings it all in. I think that'd be fine. I'm sure that a lot of dri like drivers wouldn't like it, but personally I'm okay with it. People speed through here a lot and there's a lot of foot traffic out here. So yeah, I do think it's a good idea. Now, opinions like that will be heard by City Council this week. And if this motion passes, it will be sent to city planners to look at it more closely. And, of course, there's no timeline on when this could become a reality just yet. Chris. All right. Thanks very much, Ahmad.
A Surrey mechanic killed in a random act of gruesome violence. And today, a conviction for the two teenage killers who did it. Reaction from the victim's family next on the News Hour. A new look at one of Vancouver's most enduring mysteries, a double murder from the 1950s in Stanley Park that became known as Babes in the Woods. How modern technology might help crack it coming up on the news hour. And a BC First Nation fighting back against jade fever. Why the Teltons say these mining operations are an insult and the TV series should be dropped. That's later. Right now, though, two young offenders have been found guilty of second-degree murder in the August 2019 stabbing death of a popular South Surrey mechanic, Paul Presbachmo. The killers were just 15 and 16 at the time of the attack. Grace Key has more on the verdict and reaction from Presbachmo's family. Justice for the family of Paul Brestbachmo after two teens are found guilty of second-degree murder for a stabbing near Semiamu Center on August 16, 2019. These kids are pathetic. They're a joke to society. And forever I'll just look at them as just scum. Nothing. No, nothing will become of these kids' lives. And, and we're glad. We're glad. The 45-year-old mechanic stepped out to have a cigarette at about 3.30 in the morning. Prestbachmo was stabbed 42 times in just 26 seconds. Surveillance videos showed the incident. Blood was found on the suspects, and they admitted to friends about the stabbing. As for a motive, friends say the two were in an angry, foul mood. Because they were fighting with their girlfriends. Because they were having a bad night. It was gruesome, it was disgusting, and it was without reason. The teens were found not guilty of aggravated assault against an elderly man who suffers from dementia. The judge said there was insufficient evidence that both teens participated in the assault earlier that morning. The teens were 15 and 16 at the time of the stabbing and cannot be identified because their use. But the family wants them sentenced as adults. They're not going to walk from this. They're, if they get raised to adult, this will be the rest of their life. They'll be in and out of jail and that's probably where they should be. He was probably the best brother I could have asked for. I mean, he taught me a lot. He always took care of me. I mean, I remember nights when he used to ride home with me on his bike, sitting across his arms because I didn't want to walk all the way home. I mean, he was a, he's, he's a good person. He always was. And, you know, we'll always hold him in our heart, dear. A psychiatric assessment has been ordered for the teens. A sentencing date has not been set yet. Grace Key, Global News. As B.C.'s ongoing gang conflict continues, there's a new public warning to anyone who associates, associates with these gangsters. The Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit of B.C. released 11 names and photos saying they're involved in the ongoing gang conflict. CFSEU says anyone near them are putting themselves at risk as these men are believed to be targets for violence. Barinder Dhaliwal, Maninder Dhaliwal and Damian Ryan were also on a list released yesterday by Vancouver police. I can say with certainty that uh, all agencies within the Lower Mainland are working collaboratively. They meet on a regular basis. They share intelligence uh, and are led by evidence-based uh, intelligence to ensure that they're all um, working together. And we've worked in, in uh, numerous joint force projects in the past with uh, VPD and other agencies, including the RCMP, all within the same purpose of ensuring that we're targeting these individuals that pose the highest risk to public safety. Sergeant Winpenny adds that the public will likely see further warnings of dangerous individuals as police try to keep people safe during the gang conflict. 
Up next, BC's COVID myth buster. I have over 200,000 followers now, which is pretty mind-blowing. The biomedical engineer and rising TikTok star debunking COVID misinformation. And a canoeist rescued in Howe Sound after three days stranded on the shoreline. Good evening, and as you can see, this uh, semi in the ditch from this morning is still here. Westbound on Highway 1, just before 264th. They're going to wait till after 8 p.m. to try and remove it. Expect delays and lane closures at that time. Through Kermac Cares for Kids, expert repair for your vehicle helps provide expert care for kids. When you choose Kermac, you choose to support BC Children's Hospital. Kermac Cares for Kids. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above Highway 1 and 264th. the pandemic, Dr. Bonnie Henry has been must-see TV for the latest updates on COVID-19. But for practical everyday questions, hundreds of thousands of people are turning to a UBC professor who's harnessing the power of social media to help provide some myth-busting information about the virus. Like big boys, itty bitty boys, Mississippi boys, and the city boys. When you love science as much as Dr. Anna Blakeney does, you want to share it. It's something she does frequently on TikTok. I think it's actually a really great platform to be able to, you know, show people what we do in the lab. What she does in her UBC lab is research COVID-19 vaccines, a topic a lot of people want to better understand. I have over 200,000 followers now, which is pretty mind-blowing. The kinds of questions she gets change with the seasons, like do warmer temperatures slow down COVID-19? There's actually nothing that's been shown for COVID specifically that shows that the transmission has anything to do with the temperature outside. And can you catch COVID-19 from water in swimming pools? The answer is no on two counts. Chlorine kills the virus and... It's an upper respiratory virus, so that water is going to have to be getting into your lungs. If you have pool water in your lungs, I think you have bigger issues. How about do mosquitoes, ticks, and fleas transmit COVID-19? From what I have seen, there has been no data showing that you can contract COVID-19 from any of those. Probably because COVID is not a blood-borne illness. But what if you already had COVID-19 and some level of immunity as a result? Do you still need to get vaccinated? It's been shown that it boosts your immunity to specifically to COVID a lot more. And so it's recommended now that even if you've had it, you continue to boost it. Even though Dr. Blakeney's TikTok science crusade was inspired by COVID-19, it will not disappear with the virus in the months to come. I want my TikTok to be a really open place for anybody that has even what they might think is the stupidest question about science. I think all the questions are good and they're all welcome. I'll give you all the data questions in the comments. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Well, the 2021 census is the first to be held during the COVID-19 pandemic. With Canadians filling out the household survey online, there are fears fraudsters might be taking advantage. Our Consumer Matters reporter Andrea is here with what you need to know to avoid being duped. Thanks, Sophie. Every five years, we are legally required to participate in a stats-based portrait of the country. The official census day has passed, but data collection is continuing until mid-July, which means you need to be 
be vigilant throughout the online process. Most Canadian households should have already received a letter in the mail reminding them to do their census questionnaire online. If you haven't completed it, you may get a phone call, email or a home visit. Census staff will not contact you via text message, instant messaging apps like WhatsApp or direct messages on social media. And the Better Business Bureau says you need to watch out for scammers trying to impersonate Stats Canada online. It opens up a risk where even though it's easy and it's convenient and it's efficient, it could result in a a risk of identity theft if you either share the information on the wrong platform or in the wrong form altogether or on the wrong website. And so for that reason, it could turn out to be a really precarious situation if you're not careful. So to avoid getting scammed, use the official census website to complete the questionnaire. The browser address bar should have a lock symbol indicating a secure website and the URL should end with gc.ca. When you click on start questionnaire, the URL should change to a longer address in English and French. Never click on links in unsolicited emails or you risk being directed to a fake website. And pay attention to the information being requested. The census will never ask you to share banking or credit card details or your social insurance number. And arrest threats and demands for money are clear red flags. The census is free. No payment required. Stance Canada will never threaten you with jail time, although you can be fined up to $500 by the court if you choose not to complete the mandatory questionnaire. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can reach me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. All right. Thanks, Anne. A BC First Nation takes on one of Canada's biggest broadcasters. This is going to be the million dollar rock. Why it wants jade fever pulled from the airwaves and mining on its land suspended. Also tonight, a double murder in Stanley Park more than 70 years ago still unsolved and a renewed effort to identify the babes in the woods. Traffic is steady both east and westbound over here at the Port Mambridge, which is some minor leftover volume eastbound through the Burnaby Lake stretch. From home to car insurance, BCAA's local experts are here for all your insurance needs. Visit BCAA.com. I'm Tristy Wisson in Global One at the Port Mambridge. TransLink has announced its new chief executive officer. Kevin Quinn will take over the role mid-July. Quinn was the winning candidate after a competitive international search. He most recently served as CEO of the Maryland Transit Administration in Baltimore. He holds a master's degree in public policy from Johns Hopkins University. Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum has delivered his first State of the City address in two years. The mayor highlighted how the community has withstood the strain of the pandemic, which cancelled last year's speech. In addition to holding tax increases to 2.9% for the third year in a row, McCallum touted the city's environmental initiatives, such as a ban on plastic bags, which is set to come into effect, and a more than doubling of electric vehicle charging stations at city facilities. With more electric cars sold in B.C. than anywhere else in the country, Surrey is leading the way for public charging stations, not just in the province, but for all of Canada. And despite the pandemic, the city of Surrey recorded $1.46 billion in building permits in 2020. That surpasses the 10-year average. RCMP made some arrests at an anti-logging protest on Vancouver Island. Environmentalists say hundreds of their supporters were at the site, 
but only five were taken into custody. And as Kylie Stanton reports, the 10-month-long dispute appears to be far from over. First, a senior citizen. Go, Grandma. And the arrests keep coming. So happy to stand for the trees because we hear the call. Police forced to break through chains, taking protesters at the Ferry Creek blockade into custody. This could take uh, hours, days, or a week. Protesters rallied after learning RCMP began enforcing an injunction granted by the BC Supreme Court to teal cedar products on April 1st of this year. Roughly 200 making their way to the blockades Tuesday morning in a show of support. We are here to stand together for those trees. Our land has been raped and pillaged. Oh boy. Hi, my name's Staff Sergeant Charney. RCMP gave those who've been maintaining multiple camps around Ferry Creek, as well as the Keiku's cut blocks, 24 hours notice to vacate. By not stepping aside, I confirm you understand your jeopardy. Five people were arrested. One has since been released. The rest are expected to be processed and released by the end of the day. This has been peaceful and this is the ultimate resolution that we want. But for protesters who say the watershed is one of the last unprotected, intact, old-growth forests on southern Vancouver Island, it's their greatest fear realized. It's the old-growth that we really want to protect. According to Teal Cedar Products, the province has pulled substantial areas out of the tree farm licenses and protected them. In Ferry Creek itself, only 200 of the 1,200 hectares is available for harvest, which will take place over the course of several years. It's the war of the woods! Those here believe even one of these trees is worth this fight, and for some, worth their freedom. There's lots going on in the world, but this is ours. This is ours to protect. Kylie Stanton, Global News. The city of Vancouver has apologized for its role in preventing the Komagata Maru from docking in Coal Harbor more than a century ago. On behalf of this council, to hereby formally and sincerely apologize to the victims, their descendants and all others. In 1914, Vancouver City Council supported the use of a discriminatory immigration policy to deny entry to nearly 400 British subjects on board the charter ship. The mostly sick passengers had to endure horrible conditions for two months before they were deported to India. Upon their forced return, 19 were killed, while others faced persecution. In India, Komagata Maru represents the Indian people's struggle for independence from British Empire and was the turning point uh, in India's freedom movement. Uh, In uh, Canada, it is a a reminder of a policy of uh, racism that the Sikhs and other immigrants from India lasted for half a century. The city's apology follows those already made by the federal and provincial governments. Vancouver will observe Komagata Maru Remembrance Day on Sunday, May 23rd. A B.C. First Nation is demanding the series Jade Fever be pulled off the air and all jade and gold placer mining operations be suspended in its territory. The Taltan First Nation says permits were issued without their consultation or consent. And the mining operations glorified in the Discovery Channel series are damaging sensitive environmental areas. Ted Chernecki reports. The Tarleton Territory in northwestern B.C. is huge, covering about 11% of the province. And it's pristine, if you don't look too closely. 
When we start seeing the jade, none of it's going to matter. That's jade. <laughs> the Carlton people are demanding Bell Media stop airing a show called Jade Fever. <laughs> Extremely problematic, and that show needs to be shut down immediately. And the price keeps going up. The Taltons say the show glamorizes the potential riches of finding jade, and it's making the long-standing problem of environmental damage even worse. We have caught people uh, red, red-handed, uh, poaching our animals, uh, abandoning equipment, crossing streams that uh, we need to stay healthy. In a statement, the producers of the show said Bell Media was not aware of Talton Nation's request for jade fever to be taken off air. We take the Talton Nation's concerns seriously and are investigating further. Stakeholders have spent a lot of time and money getting heavy equipment up to where the jade is, and they, for the most part, have government-approved permits. The difficulty, if there is one, is in enforcement. These are very, very remote areas where really the only access is by helicopter. Anyone doing anything illegal has a lot of time to hide their deeds if they start hearing a helicopter. Your ongoing activities are extremely disrespectful and illegal. In response to the Talton's concerns, BC has stopped issuing some permits and says it is in negotiations with the Talton about further mining restrictions. But still, jade mining continues. If you cancel permits that are lawfully issued, you have to uh, compensate. And so we've decided to wait for the expiration of those permits and make a decision about whether to renew them or not. We're not opposed to economic development in Taltan territory. We just need to make sure that it's done properly. And right now, it's an absolute mess up there. BC currently receives virtually no royalties from jade mining. Ted Chernecki, Global News. Well, you could now be fined for not wearing a mask while working out at gyms and fitness studios in B.C. An update to the Emergency Program Act order now aligns with updated guidelines from Dr. Bonnie Henry and will allow police or other officials to enforce the rules with a $230 fine. But some gyms have already taken that step. The firm, Athletica in Vancouver, which just opened its doors in April, decided to go all in on masks well before it became a rule. We wanted to make masks a mandatory thing from day one. We wanted to make sure everyone felt safe and secure uh, while they're training around other people. For clients, yes, it's been kind of a struggle sometimes when they have to work out with a mask on. But at the same time, you know what? It's something that we ought to adjust to and um, they they all have adapted well with. British Columbians are being reminded that face shields are not a substitute for a mask. And... Some people may have legitimate medical reasons for not wearing a mask. Still to come, a local filmmaker tackling some tough subjects. We want to reveal all the layers. The recognition she's getting for her documentary, The World is Bright, after an unusual start in the film business. But first, three days stranded on the rocks. The rescue of a Squamish canoeer next. An incredible story of survival tonight after a man became stuck on a rock for days near Squamish. Video of the rescue shows the spot where he spent the last 96 hours after his canoe overturned. He lost his supplies when that happened, but he did manage to hang on to his sleeping bag and some food. He was spotted today and the Coast Guard brought him back to shore. To everyone's surprise, he was in such good health, he managed to walk home on his own. Hey, good luck. Wow. Tough, tough guy. 
I wonder if he saw all that lightning and thunder and rain last night. A lot of people did, and Christy's here with a look at that and uh, our forecast as we head through the week. That's right, Chris, and I'm going to show you some video. First, I would just want to quickly point out the blue sky we had today, which was fantastic, but there were a number of areas that had downpours of hail. Certainly in Surrey, you saw that, but all the action really was last night. Between about 11 o'clock and 12.30 at night, the lightning storm was incredible, lighting up the night sky with hundreds of lightning strikes and incredible downpours of rain and, of course, the thunder waking people up. I know I was woken up and and uh, worried that my little one, I'll need you guys to, oh no, it's switching for me. There you go. And the lightning strikes onto the buildings were incredible. This was a nocturnal lightning storm, which is different from a daytime heating lightning storm. So they tend to be higher up, but the lightning can be quite intense and you can see them pushing into buildings. It moved from Delta Richmond area right across of Vancouver and then into the North Shore area in about an hour and a half. And uh, some areas got hammered for about 45 minutes. I'm hoping that you're seeing everything. For some reason, things are slow on my end. If you can move things along, that would be great. So Tumblr Ridge woke up to snowfall, if you can believe it. And we actually have a snowfall warning in place right now for the Lakes District with 15 centimeters possible this evening. And across the southern regions, we're still expecting the potential for snow on the mountain passes now, including the Kootenai Pass area. And... And that's the highway show. So Kootenai Pass expecting that tomorrow night. Now, when we have a look at uh, the northern regions for tomorrow, we are expecting a mix of sun and cloud, a slight chance of some snow in the morning for the Caribou region, but transitioning to rain. Southern BC, though, a risk of thunderstorms still tonight and tomorrow. So we've still got this instability across the region that extends into Metro Vancouver and the Fraser Valley as well. So keep your eye on the sky and when thunder roars, head indoors. But overall, we're headed towards sunshine for the next couple of days. Lots to look forward to in tonight's central windows weather window. Not quite the action-packed night we had last night, but today there were a number of intense cells, dark clouds there with intense uh, precipitation and uh, hail underneath it. So thank you to everyone who shared your photos with us. A little blue sky there too. Thanks very much, Christy. It's an unsolved double murder that's baffled investigators for nearly 70 years. Sinister crime in Vancouver's crown jewel, Stanley Park. It became known as the Babes in the Woods case, and Vancouver police are hoping new technology can finally answer who the two young boys were, and more importantly, who killed them. Sarah McDonald reports. You wouldn't know it now, but this pristine spot in Stanley Park has a morbid and sinister past tied to one of the province's most enduring and disturbing cold cases. Honestly, we're not much closer today to solving this case than we were 70 years ago. Which is why Vancouver police are turning to modern day science to solve a decades old double homicide. The victims, two young boys, just seven and eight years old, believed bludgeoned to death with a hatchet in 1948. Their skeletal remains discovered beneath a woman's coat, alongside a belt and a picnic basket by a groundskeeper some five years later. But still, decades on, nobody knows who the boys, known only as the babes in the woods, are, or who killed them. They were bludgeoned with a hatchet. When they were discovered, their skeletal remains were uh, discovered with um, 
very obvious uh, hatchet marks in their skulls. Did they come here with somebody? Did they come from another country? Were they uh, hitchhiking from another province uh, with a parent? That's where a Massachusetts-based company specializing in forensic genetic genealogy could play a key role in cracking the case, searching for a familial match between DNA extracted from the boy's bones, and that entered in public databases. It's harder to find proof of life activity for a child than it is for an adult. So we are more likely to be able to ID the mother of these children than we are to find their names. It is highly possible that the killer of these boys was either a parent or someone who is close with one of the parents. So knowing who they are would go a long way to being able to ID who killed them. And you can be, you can be holding hands, okay? Right. A longtime theory, which inspired this reenactment video for Crime Stoppers to generate leads back in the 1980s, when one of the victims was erroneously thought to be female. Action. Cameras following the last known movements of the children and a woman thought to be their mother, seen leaving the park without the kids and without a jacket by witnesses. I believe somebody knows something about it. In fact, every murder, somebody knows something about it. Whether or not they're still alive is a whole other question. The victims themselves would be elderly by now had they lived a fulsome life. But that's not stopping investigators from working to deliver justice to the nameless children whose ashes were ultimately scattered by strangers. Sarah McDonald, Global News. All right, Squires, here now the final days of the Canucks season. That is true. And uh, Thatcher Demko, who played very well today, made 38 saves in a 4-2 win, wants the Canucks to re-sign goalie coach Ian Clark. I, I owe probably <laughs> just about everything to him. Clark will be without a contract after tomorrow's final game, but obviously Demko wants him back. Also tonight, a Richmond filmmaker gets notice for her new documentary on the immigrant experience, how she handles the stress later. Let the armchair hockey quarterbacking begin in the next 48 hours here. It's almost time for the silly season, as they like to say. <laughs> and there was a lot of talk around social media, which I know is something you probably, probably shouldn't pay a whole lot of attention to that the Canucks are going to make a lot of changes today. But as of right now, Jim Benning and Travis Green will be the general manager and coach for the final game tomorrow against Calgary. And again, I'm not sure that Canucks ownership wants to pay Jim Benning out. He still has two years left in his deal, so it's not for certain that he gets let go. The uh, Canuck owners, though, have talked to Henrik and Daniel Sedin about a role in the front office going forward, but... Not likely more than an, adv an advisor role at this stage because if you didn't want to put them in charge, who'd be the boss? Would it be Henrik? Would it be Daniel? Or would you just have twin general managers? Whatever the case, all signs are pointing to some kind of changes after tomorrow's game. There should be some kind of changes, you would think. It will be an afternoon contest just like today's. And if you look on the bench, number 58, Will Lockwood. First ever NHL game used to be a teammate of Quinn Hughes at the University of Michigan. In fact, one season they were 1-2 in scoring. Quinn Hughes almost scores there. Nice move, but he will get an assist on this goal by Travis Hamanick, who's played quite well in recent weeks. That gives Vancouver a 1-0 lead. Then just before the end of the period, the Energizer bunny that is Nils Hoaglander goes to the front of the net. 
gets the puck and beats Louis Domingue, the former Canuck backup, and that makes it two to nothing, 13th of the year. Then Bo Horvat. It's a throwdown, a showdown. I don't want to go down, but Bo is. But at least he uh, put up a good battle there with Connor Mackey. Bo does not often fight. That's one thing you rarely see the captain do. Uh, third period. Tyler Myers with the big stick and the move and the goal. 3-0 for the Canucks. Now, of course, the Canucks rallied against Calgary on Sunday. Didn't win, lost in overtime. Now Calgary rallies on the Canucks. They scored two late goals, including this one by Andrew Mangiapani. It was 3-2 with the net empty, but Milan Lucic lost the puck, and Brock Besser goes backhand, and it's dead center for the 4-2 win, and they finish everything off tomorrow, 12.30 in Calgary. Okay, so Travis Green's contract will be done after the final game, and so will goaltending coach Ian Clark, who is considered one of the best in the business and who's been... Very good at helping improve Thatcher Demko since he arrived in Vancouver in 2018. Clark, that is. And because of that, Demko doesn't want to see him gone after this season. In fact, he made a plea after today's game for Canucks management and ownership to at least bring Ian Clark back. Clark, he is, uh, he's unbelievable. I mean, I, I owe probably <laughs> just about everything to him. Um, you know, I don't, I don't speak too much about him in the media, but um, the way he's guided me and mentored me, and um, you know, it's been amazing. I, uh, I desperately hope that um, they can figure something out and and have him return. Um, you know, I think the momentum that him and I have right now is is exciting, and uh, I think that there's still a ton of room for me to grow. And um, yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I really hope he he gets back here. Now, we've seen a few sports being able to play shortened seasons, but one that has been hit rather hard by the pandemic is lacrosse. Sadly, for the second straight year, the Western Lacrosse Association season has had to be canceled, along with the Man Cup, also canceled for 2021. Difficult for sure because our teams are passionate. We've been working hard to try to get ready for a season. Our players have told us uh, over and over that they really wanted to play and couldn't wait to get back on the floor. And so a very disappointing moment, but uh, it's a sign of the situation we're in. And, and we get started about uh, uh, on working for next year. Okay, we often marvel at the energy that Seattle Seahawks head coach Pete Carroll has at the age of 69 going on 70 this September. Not just his energy on the sidelines, but also at Seahawks practice. In fact, he got into a ball drill, and I mean really got into it, with one of the new Seahawks at rookie camp this past weekend. Watch. First off, I want to make sure you're doing okay after getting ran over by Cody Thompson out there on the field. No, no, I went for the forced fumble there. Didn't you see that? I was getting the ball I did, out. I did, yeah. Ball came out. I didn't come up with it, though. I think maybe a couple years back I'd have come up with that ball, but... Uh, you know, Cody did a better job scrambling for it. See, that's a rookie. The rookie should know you never steal the ball from the head coach, <laughs> ever. All right, thanks, Squire. Good point. All right, the world is bright for a BC filmmaker nominated for two major awards. Her story next. Filmmaker is nominated for two Canadian Screen Awards for her documentary chronicling a Chinese couple's quest for truth and justice following tragedy. The success of The World is Bright is validation for Ying Wang, who didn't get the start in film she was hoping for, but as Jay Durant reports, found success doing it her own way. 
case was an eye-opener in terms of what went wrong. Ying Wang's latest film is a monumental undertaking. It covers a 10-year period. It took another two years to edit and dealt with some very challenging subjects, including mental health and immigration. We want to reveal all the layers, layers and all the complexity and all the elements involved in this one family story. At times, the need to step back from the project for a moment was so great, Ying and her editor would just break out into dance when it was time to take a breath. Sometimes we try to meditate in the morning. Sometimes we just like try to exercise, take a dance break, or walk, walk, around, walk around the block backwards or something, and just, walk, just like make the experience fun for us. Ying moved from China when she was 28 and enrolled at UBC. She tried to get into the school's film program, but was rejected. So instead of giving up, she spent all of her free time at the Vancouver International Film Festival, watching, learning, and basically teaching herself the art of filmmaking. When it opened, I was just so excited, and I skipped the classes, and, and skipped classes and buy a student pass to go there, just binge-watching as much film as possible. Beautiful. Beautiful. Her other film featured her sister, who developed an eating disorder after moving to North America. And since then, Ying has used her work to push for better mental health support after immigration. We organized the experts uh, and the community members to get together to talk about it, this issue, to share their feeling, and particularly also to share uh, if they want to find help, where they can find help. See, like, I, I would be dancing on the table if this was yeah. in the studio. Which is why, knowing those challenges, these two like to remind themselves that a little levity goes a long way in life. Jay Durant, Global News. That's great. Maybe she'll be dancing on, what is it, Thursday, I think, they hand out the Screen Awards? Mm-hmm. Yes, we'll see what happens. Good luck. Looks like a great doc. All right, final word on the weather, Christy. Sure, it's beautiful out here right now, but still keep your eye on the sky. A risk of thunderstorms still overnight tonight and through the morning hours tomorrow, but lots to look forward to after that with sunshine. All right, thanks, Christy. Thanks for watching, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a good night, all.